the book of Numbers. This fourth book of the Bible carries forward the story of Israel after their exodus from slavery in Egypt. God had brought them to Mount Sinai and he entered into a covenant with them there. And despite Israel's rebellion, God had graciously provided a way for Israel to live near his holy presence in the tabernacle. So the book of Numbers begins as Israel wraps up their one-year stay at Mount Sinai, and they head out into the wilderness on their way to the land that God promised Abraham. Now the book's storyline is designed according to the stages of their journey. So the first section begins at Mount Sinai, but then they set out and travel to the wilderness of Paran. And then from there, they travel to the plains of Moab, which is right across from the promised land. Now the first part, opens with a census where the people are numbered. That's where the book gets its name. And then there are laws about how the tribes of Israel were to be arranged in their camp. So the tabernacle was to be at the center. And then around that, the priests and the Levites. And then around them, the 12 tribes neatly arranged with Judah at their head. Now, this was all an elaborate symbol about how God's holy presence was at the center of their existence as a people. This is all followed by a whole series of laws that develop the purity laws from the book of Leviticus. If God's presence was going to be in their midst, every effort should be made to make the camp pure, a place that welcomes God's holiness. In chapter 10, the cloud of God's presence lifts from the tabernacle and guides Israel away from Sinai out into the wilderness, and immediately things go terribly wrong. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're reading in Numbers 11, starting in verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. And then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance was like that of bdellium. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it in handmills, or beat it in mortars, and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like cakes baked with oil. And when the dew fell upon the camp at night, the manna fell with it. When Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant, and why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all the people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep. And my pages stuck together, y'all. For they weep to me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. 
I am not able to carry all these people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, then I may not see my own wretchedness. We're going to skip ahead a bit in that chapter into verse 31. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp. But a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp and about two cubits above the ground. And all the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people down with a very great plague. And therefore the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had the craving. And from Kibroth Hatava the people journeyed to Hazaroth, and they remained at Hazaroth. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, just FYI, this sermon is basically the exact same thing as the kids' sermon, so if you want to tune out, it's okay. Uh, I don't know if you can tell, but I like to eat. <laughs> Uh, and I'm not very picky, and I, I would consider myself kind of an adventurous eater. I'll try just about anything at least once, and I, I enjoy all different kinds of food. And, and in fact, for me, one of the greatest joys of traveling to other places is trying all the local food. Um, and, and if I like it enough, I'll try and learn to cook it at home if I can. Um, and yet, there are also foods I know I would never get tired of. Right? I could eat brisket every day and be perfectly happy. Right? Uh, same, yeah, the same goes for Mexican food. Right? I, which is a good thing living in Corpus, um, but I, would, I never get tired of it. I can't have too much of it. And I'm, I'm also perfectly happy to eat the exact same meal every day, like lunch and dinner, for a week. I could do that. If I had my way, I'd cook one huge batch of something, and then that would be all we'd eat in my house for like the entire week. I'd love it, right? It'd be cheaper and easier than trying to do a different meal every night. So easy, right? I'd just use like a little bit different hot sauce every day to create some variety. I could do that. <laughs> do that week in, week out for, for all time. But my wife cannot live like that, which means I can't live like that. Right? She doesn't want to eat the same meal two days in a row. It drives her crazy. She doesn't like it. She craves variety even more than I do. And it's not just in her head either, right? She will actually have like less of an appetite if I try and serve the same thing two days in a row. And so I've always read the story about the Israelites complaining about the lack of variety in their diet with a little bit of confusion, right? Because it sounds, you know, it, it sounds like the man had tasted pretty good you know, and it took minimal effort to gather it and prepare it to eat. So, like, what's the problem? <laughs> you got free food. It's easy to get. It tastes good. Why are you complaining? And then I got married, and I learned what the problem was, and the problem was me, right? Because I'm kind of a weirdo. Most people, most people are more like my wife than they are like me, right? Most people want more variety. Uh, I mean, all the kids up here certainly seem to agree with that, right? Most people are more like the Israelites in this story. They crave that kind of variety. And if you really think about it, you can probably sympathize with them. I mean, it's pretty clear, even as slaves in Egypt, they got to eat this incredible variety of different foods. They had access to meat and fish and all this produce and cucumbers and melons and garlic and leeks. Like, they lived in this land of plenty with fresh produce available year-round. And they were used to a diet that included this huge range of flavors and textures and colors. And now they're reduced to eating the exact same stuff every day for every meal. And it's been going on for at least two years at this point. 
And so it sounds trivial at first, but I think most of us actually, if we put ourselves in their shoes, we can imagine being just as upset about it and just as frustrated by it as they are. Now, even if I, I mean, I say I'd be okay eating the same thing every day for a week, but I'd want something different the next week, right? I like to eat. You know, I, I like to try new foods. I like variety. Eating is not just a way to fuel our bodies. No matter how often we want to tell ourselves that, right? No matter how many fitness influencers try and say eat food is just fuel, it doesn't work that way. We all know it. It's not just a way to fuel. We derive joy from it. Not just from the act of, of eating a meal with people, but we derive a lot of joy from good food and new food. We're hardwired to do that. It's part of how we're designed. It's part of how God means, means for us to enjoy his good creation. So we all understand when we stop to think about it that eating the exact same thing for every meal for weeks, months, years on end actually sounds kind of horrible. The Israelites miss Egypt. They may have been slaves, but at least the food was better. And this isn't the first time that the Israelites have complained about their life as a free people. It's not the first time they have looked back on Egypt with longing. And there is a specific and powerful lesson to take away from stories like this. The people of God face disappointment. It happens all the time. And often the things that are happening which disappoint us are things that we think kind of clash with God's nature as a good and loving God and with the, the things he's promised for us, right? God promises to provide for us. He promises he'll meet our needs, and Jesus reiterates this in the Gospels, right? He, he tells people, don't worry about how you feed yourselves or how you'll clothe yourselves. He points to the flowers in the field and the sparrows in the air and says, look, if God can clothe the flowers and feed the sparrows, he'll do the same for you. And we hear that. And we get all happy, and it feels warm and fuzzy inside. And what we assume it means is we'll get all the food we want. We'll get all the clothes we want. We'll get nice clothes. God will make us look good. He's our personal fashion designer, right? We'll get all the things we want. That's what we assume. But that is not what he promised. He promises us what we need, not what we want. And there are reasons for that. One of them is because it tests us. It reveals who we really are. And it reveals where our priorities are. It can make us look at our former lives and, and wish that God had never taken hold of us. Have you ever experienced that? Ever thought back on your life and, and wished you hadn't been following God? Let me tell you something. I experienced that a lot. There were plenty of days when I wished that God hadn't called me into ministry. I was never totally sure what I was going to do before I was called into ministry. I didn't know what my career would be. But one of the options with the degree I was getting would have been to go and work for the National Park Service. And let me tell you, there are plenty of days when I think to myself, I could be living in a cabin in the middle of the woods with no cell service where no one can find me right now and be getting paid to do it. And it sounds really nice. And I see the kind of freedom that, that so many of my friends have who, who are in other non-ministry careers. And sometimes I wish that was me. Sometimes I wish I didn't work on Sundays. And sometimes I wish I had the sort of job that I can leave at the office instead of taking it home with me. And sometimes I wish I could work a job that's just a job and not a calling. Because the truth is I miss Egypt. 
Not every day. Not even most days. Most days I'm pretty happy and love my job, just so you're all reassured. It's, it's okay, I'm happy. But following Jesus is hard. Being faithful is hard. Putting my faith into action, actually living out my beliefs is hard. It's easy to get disillusioned with it. It's easy to just complain about it to other people instead of turning to God. And the people complain. Moses turns to God. And then he complains. And his complaint's hilarious, by the way. Moses turns to God and says, what am I, their mother? (laughs) What do they want from me, God? And my personal favorite, God, just kill me now, right? I'd rather be dead than deal with these whiny brats for one more day. Just strike me dead. Smite me, almighty smiter. I'm done. It's hilarious to listen to Moses and God talk. You know, you, you've seen like the, the dad on the road trip driving the family through the desert and the kids are asking like, are we there yet? And he keeps threatening to turn the car around. That's Moses throughout the entire book of Numbers. <laughs> I will turn this tent around, I swear. <laughs> awesome. I love it. I laugh out loud every time I read it. So Moses turns to God and, and he says, look, the people are complaining. They want, they want something different. And, and God responds to their complaints by giving them too much meat to eat, right? You want meat, I'll give you meat. You know, the, the way it's phrased is that God strikes them down with a plague, but the implication is literally they eat too much of it and it makes them sick. They got what they craved and it hurt them. God isn't you know, giving in and giving them what they want as a way of taking care of them. He's teaching them an object lesson. Just because you want something doesn't mean you should have it. And getting what you want isn't necessarily a good thing. They had food to eat. They weren't starving. They weren't malnourished. They weren't even hungry. They just wanted something different from what God had given them. They could have asked God to, to take away their desire for things they didn't have. Right? They, they could have asked God to change their hearts so they would be satisfied with what God had provided, but they didn't. They gave in to their craving and they demanded that they get what they wanted. In point of fact, what they did is they, they threw a temper tantrum, didn't they? I mean, as a, as a collective people, y'all know we don't stop doing that just because we grow up. Right? We still do it as adults. They longed for the days of their slavery because at least as slaves, they got better tasting food. How quickly we become dissatisfied with what God has given us. And what is this story but just a repeat of the original sin? Adam and Eve had the whole garden at their disposal. They could eat from any tree they wanted except for one. And they couldn't resist eating the forbidden fruit. The Israelites had all their needs met. God gave them all the food they needed. They didn't have to plant or harvest crops. They didn't have to work for their food at all. They just had to walk outside in the morning and there it was on the ground. They literally just had to bend over and pick it up. They had all the water they needed. When they ran out, God brought water out of rocks. They wanted for nothing. God gave them everything they needed. This is a foretaste of paradise, isn't it? You don't have to work for your food or your water. Just live your life and it's all provided for you. God was giving them everything they needed and it wasn't enough. 
and we are so quick to judge them for this. But the truth is we're no better. God gives us everything we need, and it's never enough. You know, we in this room live better and more comfortable lives than 99% of all humans who have ever lived. We have more access to food and clean water, more access to clothes, more ability to travel, better medical care, more safety than 99% of humans who have ever lived. Even with the war happening in Ukraine right now, we live in the most peaceful period in all of recorded history. Every single human being alive today, no matter where they live in the world, is less likely to die a violent death, less likely to die of starvation or disease than any human who lived in any past period in history. Think about that. And it's not enough. And we will demand more. We will ask for more. And there's nothing wrong inherently with that, but what happens is when we don't get it, our faith is shaken. There's nothing wrong with asking God for more. It becomes a problem when you stake all your faith on it. When you start to doubt because God doesn't give you what you demand. It makes sense that God would want to put his people through this test before they enter the promised land. Because the promised land is a land of plenty just like Egypt. Egypt is fertile because it has the Nile River running through it. It floods every year and deposits all this fertile soil all around it. Even now, if you look at a satellite image of Egypt, it's all brown with one long streak of green running through the middle where the Nile is. Egypt was so fertile, it was the breadbasket for the entire Roman Empire once it was conquered. Israel's fertile too. has a river running right through the middle of it. has fertile soil all throughout it. Even today... Even today, Israel is a land of plenty. When we were there in January, there was fresh produce everywhere you looked. Tons of it. It's a land of plenty. Just like in Egypt, they'd have access to meat and fish and cucumbers and melons and onions and garlic and all the things, right, we, things we just take for granted because we can buy them at the grocery store. But to them, this is amazing, right? Before the people enter that land of plenty, before they go into that place, God needs to teach them to rely on him. They need to learn how to rely on God before they can gain access to a place where they will be easily deceived into thinking they can rely on themselves. Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians, in, in 1 Corinthians 10, and this is not up on the screen. He says, For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. That's the manna. They all drank the same spiritual drink, the water from the rocks. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And they were overthrown by their own desires, by their own temptations. Paul is telling us explicitly that this story from Numbers is a warning to us. Don't be deceived. Don't fall into that trap of idolatry, of wanting more, of, of not relying on God, of thinking that what God has given you is not enough. So what is it that you want? What is it that you don't have that you think God owes you? Because that's what it really is. It's not just something they want. It's not just that they want meat. They think God owes it to them. 
They think God who brought them out of slavery owes it to them to give them the exact same things that they had that they liked back then. What don't you have that you think God owes to you? What is it that you long for so much that you'd be willing to go back into slavery to sin and death to have? And don't pretend that there isn't something. We all have something. You may not even realize what's going on. You may not realize that the thing you're craving, the thing you're lusting after, is drawing you back into sin, drawing you back into that slavery that controls you. You may not realize that if God actually gave you what you want, it would ruin you. Very often, all throughout Scripture, God withholds his greatest blessings until his people have learned to rely on him in the wilderness. Even Jesus goes and spends 40 days in the wilderness before he begins his ministry. Even he had to learn that lesson. If there's something you desperately want and it seems like something that God ought to be willing to give you and it hasn't happened yet, the first question you should be asking is, what is God trying to teach me right now? How is God teaching me to rely on him? Because the problem is not that God isn't faithful or that God isn't generous. And it's definitely not that you're just not praying hard enough or you're too sinful for God to provide for. Throw all that out the window. It's not true. The problem is simply that we miss Egypt. And we'd go back there if we could. Before we can move forward into God's promises, we have to get over that longing. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.